So I want to take a look at the education revolution uh, today through uh, a different lens. And I want to start by telling you about a skin disorder I have. I have vitiligo. You know anybody with vitiligo? It's the Michael Jackson skin disorder. Uh, most of my face, if you, if you come later and look closely, I've lost the pigment over the last few years. I've had the disorder for about 10 years. Those of you who know me will not be surprised to know that I run an online social network for people with vitiligo that's now the world's largest network. But it's a very debilitating disease for people who have darker skin. For me, I don't face that as much. But it's been an intriguing journey. And part of the journey is that I've discovered I have this uh, host of autoimmune disorders, including a blood clotting disorder, which has created a little bit of a scare. And I have neuropathy which they really can't figure out why I have the neuropathy. But I met a friend who said there's this connection between neuropathy, which is the loss of feeling in your extremities for me and my feet, and hormone-fed beef. And she said, I think if you stop eating hormone-fed beef, you might find that the feeling comes back in your feet. And I looked it up online, and it was actually sort of credible. And I said, well, I can do that, right? I, I can become a vegetarian. Okay, so that's broccoli in the middle, right? <laughs> On the right is a Pringles can, because technically Pringles is vegetarian. So let's just preface this by saying I, I, I decided to become a vegetarian, but not really a strict, healthy vegetarian. But even as a vegetarian, it's been very interesting, right? So I went to see my doctor, and she said, oh, this is actually a pretty good idea. She said, would you consider going vegan? So this was in February of last year. So vegan would be, uh, no animal products whatsoever. So you take out milk and cheese and yogurt and the like. So I said, yeah, I could do that. I could go vegan. So that February, I had a blood test. This is just uh, less than a year ago. And there's a scale, and it's for um, the likelihood of a cardiovascular event. Okay, event being the key word, right? So the scale is if you're below one, you're below average. If you're in the range of one to three, you're average. If you're above three, you're in trouble. And I tested at 6.06, likelihood of a cardiovascular event. Okay, I went back in October, just a couple of months ago, and had my blood retested. I'm now at 1.04. This is just eating a vegan diet. And again, with some Pringles here and there, right? <laughs> Not super strict. So my wife and I, over the holiday break, decided we were going to watch some of these movies that everybody told us about. Right? So one is called Forks Over Knives. There's Fat, Sick, and Nearly Dead. There's Food, Inc. But Forks Over Knives really struck me, right? Because it references this China study, which was a 20-year study in 65 counties in China it's just this phenomenally in-depth study of health and diet, right? And, and what they found was a direct correlation between our degenerative diseases and eating animal products, right? Animal foods. The, 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 it's kind of staggering. At the time, and I don't think this is true anymore, but at the time, the uh, breast cancer rate among uh, women in Western countries was five times that of a Chinese woman. And the rate of heart problems among Western men was 17 times what it was for someone in China. 
well, this is sort of phenomenal and stunning, right? And I thought, well, how, have I been living under a rock? How do I mean, in eight months, I was able to reduce my cardiovascular risk of a risk of a cardiovascular event to almost where I'm below average. And, and now I'm discovering that, in fact, that this, the, this plant-fed diet is, the plant food diet is significantly associated with better health. I was like, what? Really? Can this be true? Uh, stunning. So if it's true, why aren't we all eating vegetables all the time? Right? Wouldn't we just sort of logically say, okay, yeah, we're going to eat vegetables. Well, it turns out that this is a story of institutions. Right? And, and institutions are a tricky thing, but essentially institutions are a hammer, sort of seeing every problem as a nail. Right? I mean, that's a, that's a famous saying, and it's a little bit of an exaggeration, but the, but the fact of the matter is that institutions depend on their survival and their existence on the problem that they were designed to solve still existing. We still have to meet a need, right? So what the, the, it, does the institution actually need the problem? And if so, does the institution become self-perpetuating? Meaning, does the institution actually perpetuate the problem it was designed to solve? And in the case of the USDA, this is clearly true. Intriguingly, what the, the Forks Over Knives documentary shows is the people who were sitting on the USDA committees that produced all of those food pyramids that we learned about, or the food plate now, all had financial ties to the, they were industry people. So there was actually a financial incentive to get us to be eating the things that they produced. Well, that's really interesting and a little bit scary. Right, to think about this influence on something that we've just sort of assumed was actually really a health guideline, but came from people who had a vested financial interest. So the, the medical industry actually comes into this collusion as well, right? Because it's more profitable to treat the symptoms of heart disease than it is actually to cure heart disease. Right, so symptoms, all of the pharmaceutical industry, you have all of these things that we do, all of the pills that we take that are essentially intended to counteract the symptoms, but they don't address the core issue. And I, and, you know, I, I can't speak as a scientist about the food, but for my own personal health to so dramatically improve just going on a modified vegetarian diet, there's something really significant here. Right? And the degree to which the health institutions perpetuate bad health is a fascinating irony and a little bit of a conundrum. And I asked my doctor, I said, is this actually true? And she said, yes, this is kind of how it works. Okay, so the result then being that the food pyramid, which we assumed was for our health benefit, produced obesity. Now that's a stretch, you can watch the movies, you can decide if you agree with that, and largely because of financial interests. And we are now faced with a, an epidemic of obesity. And unfortunately, we've been taught all the wrong things. Okay, here's where I'm going to stretch you. So let's look at schooling as an institution. And is it possible that schooling does the same thing? Okay, if you know how to play rocks, papers, Rocks, papers, rock, paper, scissors, please stand up. If you know how to play rock, paper, scissors, please stand up. Find the person next to you, play a simple, single game, 
one time through, rock, paper, scissors. If you win, stay standing. If you lose, sit down. Okay, winners standing, losers sit down. Winners, find another winner, play against the winner. If you're a winner, you should be standing. If you're a loser, you should be sitting down. Okay, you guys, speed it up here. Okay, somebody's tr triggering, right? Okay, those of you who are standing, I want you to look at yourselves. You're an attractive group. You're smart, you're talented. You deserve to be a winner, right? Do you deserve to be a winner? Yeah, of course you do, because you're smart, attractive, thoughtful. There's nothing about you that should deny you the ability to win. But the fact of the matter is you won through a game of chance here. And intriguingly, school is a game of chance. Well, you can sit down. Where you're born, right? We know the Pygmalion effect is real. We know that the effect of poverty is real. We know that there are expectations that, that become self-reinforcing. And, and those of us who are at the top of this game who've won, of course we believe we deserve to be here, but the reality is this is a very unfair game of chance, right? So is school actually perpetuating the problem that we say it's designed to solve? And if the problem is ignorance, does schooling actually solve that? Right? And what tools do schools use? Compliance, control, and testing. Right? And, and do these tools actually help prevent ignorance? Okay, this is a very poorly drawn chart. Right? But we know that 30% of our students drop out. A third of our students drop out. Right? So they're unskilled and they're unconfident. Then, there are the winners at the top, a small minority, and then in between there are the people who leave school not feeling like a winner, but believing they're a failure. Well, I gave this talk or a version of it at Google a couple of days ago, and some students came up to me and they said, you know, we're in the winner category, but the truth is we don't feel like winners. We actually feel like failures. As much as we're categorized as winners, we don't feel like we're learners. And so do most people come out of school, schooling, believing that they are learners? And the truth is probably an awkward no. Most people feel like they're, they didn't come out of school as, a, as someone who categorized themselves as a successful learner. So what do we do with this? I mean, I think inherently we know at some level there's truth here. That the education system is failing. We've talked about it today, you know, reinventing education. Turn to your neighbor and in 30 seconds, Describe your most engaging learning experience. Okay, for how many of you was a relationship significantly associated with that learning experience? For how many of you was a relationship significantly associated with that learning experience? For how many of you did it involve peers? For how many of you did it involve some form of human interaction where somebody believed in you or pushed you or trusted you? Intriguingly, we know that our learning experiences are like this. And the conditions of that learning right, are not tests. They're not control. They're not compliance. So does schooling actually promote learning? or the feeling of not being a learner. 
who was this, or where's our Stanford guy who suggested today that, you know, that we are a learning machine? Yes, we're born to learn. That's who we are. And intriguingly, a huge number of us leave high school believing that we, we, we are not capable of doing something of significance. Uh, my podcast partner, Audrey Waters, that many of you might know, and I have discussed this at length because her son graduated from high school, and he said, I don't know what to do. He was completely lost. And I don't think that's an uncommon experience. I don't think our sense is that when you finish high school that you will be sort of fully functioning. But in most cultures, the age of 13 or 14, you're transitioning to adulthood. Right? And you have some sense of capability. So if we use this new lens, I want to suggest that it changes the way we think about education reform. And the way we have considered the sort of two large pillars of education reform, the dated government-driven and the progressive movement, are oftentimes actually the same thing. That they're both forms of thinking about change from the top down. Well, we have a better system, so the one we currently have isn't good, but we've got this better idea, and we're going to now mandate the new and better on top of everybody else, which is, a, which is again, another form of control. And like Coke and Pepsi, they're, they're both not actually good for us, and there's a lot of money being spent to distinguish the two, but they're actually the same thing. They're sugar water. Okay, so in this same lens then, what is it we should be doing? And my contention would be that we need to be thinking of process and participation as the goal. So there's this great 21st century skills report, right? This committee meets for a year. They talk about what 21st century skills are. It's brilliant, really fun conversation. They produce a report and then they push this report down. And what I think we should be pushing down is the process of gathering together and talking about what 21st century skills are. That it's not the end result of that committee that was valuable, but it was the idea of actually holding that conversation. And as much as possible, we need to be holding those conversations about learning at the lowest level possible. So taking back learning is not institutional. Taking back learning is a social goal. We're we, we, our tendency is going to be to look for institutional solutions because that's who we are and what we do. But I think it's actually not an institutional opportunity. So Dale Doherty, the founder of the Maker Movement, talks about how he wants the movement to grow. And he says he wants it to grow like the marathon uh, movement in this country has grown. Right? There's nobody saying everybody should run marathons, but people on a one-to-one -one basis talk, oh, I'm doing this. Have you ever thought about running a marathon? And I'll train with you. And there's this communication one-to-one -one which leads to change. And we're used to this hierarchical, structured world in which institutions initiate change. But in fact, the changes that we're seeing now are largely grassroots that then come up and appear to be the same results as an institution, but they've come up from the grassroots. And there's an important lesson there for us. So my challenge to you is, where can you start a conversation about learning? Where in your community, with the people that you know, can you start a conversation about learning, which is actually an opportunity for the process to start taking place? Thank you.